While you're turning to John chapter 15, I would like to remind you that the verse we started with, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, the question was, who will go? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. That God had a task. There was a service that needed to be rendered unto the Lord by some willing person. And if you read in Isaiah 6 what it was that God wanted them to do, it wasn't very glamorous. But somebody was willing to do it, whatever God's bidding was, they were willing to do it. And the point is that all of us, if we have truly been called out of darkness unto God, unto his marvelous life, if we have been born again, if God has saved us, he saved us with a purpose, because he said he did, according to his own will and purpose in 2 Timothy 1, has God saved us. He had a reason for saving us. It wasn't to leave us alone, to let us remain as we were or have been, but to bring us out of that dark place and that worldly place we were all in to himself and there give us a direction for what purpose he saved us for. We are all obligated to service. We may not really understand that or know that well, but all of us, by virtue of being born again and willing to be born again, asking God to save us, we are obligated to service. That doesn't mean we're all obligated to go preach somewhere because not everybody's called to preach. We all have a message, for sure. We all have a testimony. We should be apt to teach. But there are many different ways that we serve God. Matthew 25, Jesus said, if you have done it under the least of these, that could be the person across the street. That could be the people you visit in some home where maybe people are no longer visited and nobody cares about, but you have it in your heart to care about them. They give a little bit of joy in what life they have left to say something good or do something good, to be useful to God, to spread cheer and joy. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. One of the equippings of God is to make joyful of other people, something that we all need in this angry, mad world we live in. And so we all have a purpose. We're here, hopefully, to learn, to get information from God about what it is he wants us to do to be so sensitive to God in our relationship with God that when he does speak, we can hear him. Now, last week, we looked at John 15. I had prefaced John 15 by saying that our service must be prompted by a willing heart, not by a sense of duty as much as it is a willing desire to serve God, to not draw back and say, oh, that costs too much, that's too hard, too far, too hot. Too difficult, but a willing desire, a willingness to do whatever God wants. I don't think what we do is acceptable to God if it doesn't come from a willing and, secondly, a loving heart. But we have to have in our heart as purpose, I want to love God and demonstrate my love in responding to him, to do whatever he wants. It doesn't matter. God didn't save me because I had a talent. God didn't save me because I was popular. God saved me because he had a purpose for my life, regardless of what I have. And I want to do that. That's the kind of heart that serves God on God's terms and gets God's reward. 
Now, John 15, 12 and 13 talks about loving your brother and so forth. And then we go to verse 16. And he says these words that most Christians are familiar with. He said, you have not chosen me. He said, but I have chosen you. And not only have I chosen you, but I have ordained you. And not only have I ordained you, but I have commissioned you to go. With whatever I have ordained you with, whatever purpose I have for your personal life, wherever you are, I want you to go and be my ambassador, my representatives in the world, in your community, in your family. Hey, you got children, you got children to save. You got a place right there to start your work. Bringing Christ into your home and letting Christ flow out of your home, making citizens for God's kingdom. But he said, I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Now, let me say again what I said last week about it. Fruit is the major purpose. Fruit. Now, there's many ways that people probably define fruit. I'm not saying mine's better than anybody's. I'm just saying that for me, when I try to evaluate after all these years of what does God mean when he says bear fruit, because he makes a big deal out of it. In Matthew 3, 10, he said, you know, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Fruit's the big deal. I don't care what you aspire to do in this life and how hard you try to be a good person or very religious. The thing that God is after when it's over is fruit. Fruit. So, I, you know, you search for a proper definition. What is fruit? Well, to me, fruit is the expression of your life on what drives you. What is in you that is giving you motivation to do what you're doing? Because what you did was the fruit of that motivation. If God is inside, if God is at work in me, if God is doing something properly, really stirring me up, getting my attention, making me think about things, causing me to say, that's what I will do, and my efforts in life are at doing that, then what I did was fruit. We could call it works. You did it. Something was in you to drive you to do it. Your speech, your deeds, uh, good deeds would be good fruit. Something inside of you compels you to live the way you live. Something causes us to act the way we act. Something causes us to express ourselves the way we do, whether in words with anger or overcoming with a smile and a kind word. Something inside of us is expressing itself through us. Now, Romans, and Paul spoke in Romans, he said, whoever you serve is who is in charge. If you're serving the world, then what comes out of you is worldly fruit. People like for you to be cool, don't they? They like for you to be, well, cool. The world doesn't want you boys to comb your hair, tuck your shirt, tail in, shine your shoes. I hope it brushes your teeth. But the world runs people. 
It rules people because that's what people want. The TV for kids today said this is how kids ought to act. Then you turn on the evening news and watch them act and you go, ooh. But that's what drives people. Can you imagine reaching at the end of your life and the fruit of your life has been hurting people, harming people, cursing people, acting stupid, living out of wedlock with multiple kids? Can you imagine that's what your life ended with? You made no contribution to society. Nothing good came out of your life that was good for other people. It was all about you and your ways and your fun and your pleasure and your joy and you doing your thing. And Paul said, when you did those things in Romans 7, he said, when you did those things, the fruit of your life was death. Because when it's over and you don't know when it's going to end, you stand before God. And your judgment is fair and honest. God judges you on the basis of that. Not what church you went to, what choir you sang in, how many mission trips you were on, how many people you led to the Lord, but what was the fruit of your life in the end? Because he also says that your fruit should remain. It stays put. It stays with you. It stays with you. It produces more and more and more. He said again in verse 16, he said, I have chosen you and I've ordained you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Everybody can do a deed every now and then and do okay for a while and point back 20 years ago when you did something. But fruit is continuous. It stays with you until the end. You remain and continue to be a fruitful, fruit-bearing person, a person that God reproduces himself in because that's what a seed is for, a seed, when you plant a seed, what God wants is a reproduction of the original. If God planted a seed of joy in your heart, what God wants is joy because it's a spiritual thing. You would agree to that. Overcoming is a spiritual thing. He plants those seeds when you're sitting here this morning or through the years and you hear the word. That word drops in your heart. That's what God wants. This is what he wants to motivate you. And in the difficult times, you'll have to have that. You've got to have difficult times in order to bear fruit. What God wants to come out of your life as an expression of who you, what you, and how you believe. He wants you to do what he taught you. You're bearing fruit unto God. For what is happening is a God-likeness, or godliness we call it, is what you're known by. Godliness is profitable, isn't it? Of course it is. So who you submit yourself to in this life, who you yield yourself to, he said in Romans 6. He said, know you not that to whom you yield yourself, his servants you are, that's who you're serving? You're really not obligated to serve that because you quit right away. But when it comes to God, you serve him all the way, all the way to the end. But the choice is ours, folks. Everybody in this room, there are no exceptions. Everybody in this room lives by choices. God gives us the right choices to motivate our choices. But we're all going to make choices in our life. You're going to stay angry. You're going to have a fit. You're going to, I'll tell you one thing, you're going to be like that. Or at some point, something bigger than you is going to 
root itself in you, and it's going to come out of you as God's way. And in that sense, God will increase, and we will decrease. It will be more of him and less of us. And then when it's over, he will say, well done, thou good and faithful. He could, I guess, said fruitful. Thou faithful, fruitful servant, you have obeyed from your heart that word that God gave you. You allowed that word to replace your old ways. You submitted yourself to what the Lord wanted instead of how you felt about something. Instead of telling a lie to save yourself, you were willing to suffer because of your lie, but tell the truth. That's fruit. That's good fruit. That's fruit unto the Lord. Now, how do we do it? Look at verse 5. Verse 5. We are described as a branch. God is a vine. Let me, let me just draw a vine. God is a vine, and he has determined, at least as, as an illustration, that we in connection with God, are like branches. We're like a little branch that God puts in the vine. That's a little branch. We'll put some stuff on it in a minute, okay? Now, this is the picture that we have in the Bible about in John 15. He says, I am the vine. Now, what do we know as a vine to be? He's the source of life. Only in the vine is there life. Because he said, if the branch is broken off, what happens to the branch? You can snip a branch off of any tree in this county and lay it down with something beautiful, leaves on it, lay it down. Put it in a prominent place in your house, and it dies. You know why it dies? Because it has no source for life. It was once full of life, but the life it had came from the vine or the tree or the trunk. Now, you cut it away from that. You sever that, as the Greek says. You sever it from that, and it has no life. That's why it says, there is a way which seems right. It's not the way of the vine. It's not God's way, but man has a way. And when he begins to do his own thing, it's a way of death. And how we don't like to hear that in churches today, but it's the truth. There's only one way that's right. It's God's way. But... The vine is God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we live and move and have our being. Turn that around. Without him we do not live. We're alive. We're alive biologically. We're dead zoologically. We have bios, not zoe, life. We're living in this world, but we're dead. Like the Bible said, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't look dead. We don't feel dead. We may not even appear to be dead, but in the eyes of God, spiritually, we're dead. We have no life. We have no connection with God, because without that, there is no life. So he said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And he said in verse 5, He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth what? Much fruit. So, if this is a branch, and this is me, or if that's too selfish, this is you. Am I right in saying that God's will and design 
For a branch is to bear fruit. Whatever the vine wants to put into this branch, whatever it is he wants me to do or be, he begins doing it and it doesn't happen all at once. Sometimes it's little by little, piece by piece. He puts things together because that's what makes you interested. That's what draws you to him. Say it again. Say it again, Lord. And you begin to think in a dream, a vision, a book you read, a sermon you heard, a conversation with somebody, and God begins to put pieces together, and you begin to see yourself the way you believe God wants you to be. So information is coming into your life. This information is life. Didn't Jesus say in John 6, my words are spirit and life? There is life in his word. Well, the word begins to come in. God makes sure. And what he wants is, of course, and this is supposed to be all manner of fruit after. Okay. Everything you want your life to be, that's what he wants. But you'll never get the fruit he wants until there's a connection between the vine and the branch. How did he end verse 5? What did he say? He said, for without me, you, though you're busy, though you're active in a busy, active church, without me personally inspiring, motivating, and equipping you, no matter what you do, you can't do anything. I think that's an amazing verse because we're all busy or we're all taking this for granted. You know, when I grew up in the church, like a lot of people did, church didn't mean that much to me. It was just something you did. It was not a necessity. Now it becomes my life. It is very necessary. But think of it. Without me being attached to the vine, having a willing desire to hear what the vine has to say and what the vine wants, without that kind of an inspiration, I'm going to be left to what I think is right. Somebody's going to give me a bunch of things to do, things to think about, and I'm going to take off on a tangent without hearing from God. Sometimes God's words to us are very simple words, very plain words. Sometimes his mission for your life right now, today, where you are, is very simple. It might be nothing more than a phone call, a note you wrote, a call you made, a card you sent. It could be saying, I'm sorry to somebody that you've offended, or who knows what. But the life that we need to have in us that to inspire everything that we do has to come from the word abiding. See, abiding is a relational word. Abiding doesn't mean visit. Abiding means dwelling. Remember the 91st Psalm, he that dwelleth in the secret place? It's not a twice a week visit to the, some secret place where, hey, God, it's me. But it's where you live. And it's not some place that you're lost to the world. Nobody can find you anymore. You're still very much alive. You still work at your job. You clean the house and you do your job. But there's a spiritual dimension in your life now that's added to all this. It is a relationship with God. If it's right, God is in all your thoughts. You are reminded daily as you walk through life of things you have heard. If you've listened, you're reminded of the 
inspirations you've had. These are things that God keeps on your mind. Your mind is being trained and renewed to think differently and see things differently than you ever did. And you want that. So you cater to that. Then you read the Bible. And you begin to think about this and dwell on that. What does that mean? What is God saying there? What is this all about? God is drawing you and me, us, for those of us who want to respond. God is drawing us to him, not just on Sunday mornings. That's easy. That's a piece of cake. Not just on a Wednesday night when I don't even go to church. But he's drawing us to him day by day. Our life now is all about him or becoming more and more about him. We begin to tell ourselves, you can't do that no more. You can't say that. Don't do that. Don't say that. You begin to realize that what God is teaching you is a right way. As you'll see in a minute, God wants us to bear fruit unto holiness. A new and living way that can only come from God. It doesn't come from man's religion. It only comes from God. Man doesn't approve much of this, but God does. Simple, quiet moments in your life. You've got your Bible in your lap and you're reading. And you're thinking. And you take a little time to talk to the Lord and pray. Or sometimes you just talk out loud. They call that musing, M-U-S-I-N-G. The same word is translated meditating in the Old Testament. And the Bible speaks a lot about meditating or musing and pondering and thinking. Listening to what you've heard. Let that word come back like a cow chewing her cud. You know, what she ate comes back up to get the juice out of it. That's another picture of meditating. It's pondering. It's what relationship is. To have a relationship with God, there must be a yielding of a man's spirit by his will. He must be willing to yield unto God in his way. To be willing to say no to yourself and yes to God. That's the message of the cross. There must be this in us and for this transformation from the way we were when he saved us to the kind of person he wants us to be to come to pass. It's what he wants. It's communication. Well, when God begins to talk to us, when we begin to hear his word, if we don't get mad at it because I'm just a religious person, I didn't appreciate that. When you begin to listen and realize, give God the benefit of the doubt. Maybe we are all as filthy rags. The definition of that is kind of, oh, but that's the way God defines our efforts at doing something that he must surely accept. I mean, I'm not a bad person. I'm a, and people like to say that. And yet the Bible says that all of us, without exception, were evil. Oh, no, we can't admit that. Not today in this society with no comb and razor and shoe polish. Not today. Oh, no, everybody's good. And yet God says nobody's good. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's not a right good one in the whole bunch of us. And we hear that and we think, well, I don't think that's exactly what I, and yet you are. You'll never grow. 
You'll never be much different than you are right now until you accept the fact that God is entirely right and what he says is right and you are wrong. I'll never respond to God until I'm willing to admit that's true. It's just like people who go to church casually. It's never been a big deal. God has put on this earth, the major focus of this earth is not me running around in it, it's his church. And you come to the church, the saints gather together. This is our proving ground. This is where we come and go from. This is where we're taught. This is where we grow. From here, we're sent if we're sent. From here, we've identified ourselves, proven ourselves. God puts in the church all the necessary equipment to cause us to think right, to see right, and to do right. Whether we do or not depends on how we respond. And if we don't respond to what God says, the fruit we're going to bear in the end is bad fruit. Because it's all about us and not about God. But when we take advantage of what God has and what he's saying, sometimes, folks, just the little things that he wants us to do... Painting the wall, a service unto God, it's part of the growth. It leads to stage two. It'll take you to a level higher and higher and higher. You be faithful in small things, he'll make you faithful in big things. But we come together. The church, the body of believers that God has brought here, this is our place. This is where we learn. This is where we grow. This is where we meet the vine corporately, that is, together. This is the time, the special time that God would take. If there were gifts operating, this would be a time he would most likely do it when we're all here. Nobody comes in here on a day like this, not even those of you that are not paying attention right now. Nobody will leave without hearing something. God will touch every heart. Everybody will hear something because the atmosphere will be charged with that. Even if you don't want to hear something, even if you're angered about something, you heard something. That something can pave the way for a relationship for you to draw nigh to God and then he will draw nigh to you. And when he does, what happens there will increase your desire to abide with him or to dwell with him, or to stay in his presence, or to come again and again as often as you want. 24 hours a day, he's open. To dwell in the secret place, the place that's for you. It's a quiet place for you to talk and to listen and to be in the presence of God. He knows your thoughts. He knows your heart before you ever get there. But it's a chance for you to come and open your heart to him. And wrestle with things. Jesus wrestled with the Lord. Paul wrestled with the Lord. Everybody does. But it's fellowship. It's what abiding is all about. We go before him. As sheep that had gone astray. And he brings us back to him. He says you've learned a lot of bad ways in your life. You've done a lot of wrong things. You've, you've developed a lot of bad reactions. Now you keep coming. I'm going to make you so mad. I'm going to get you so fired up. You're going to have a hissy fit. I cannot define a hissy fit. 
My parents talked about having hissy fits. But you get yourself in a wad and you're upset because you came here to be blessed and glorified and glamorized. And all you had pointed out was your stinking sins. But at least God now has given you something to think about, hadn't he? I can't believe he said that. Where in the Bible does it say that? Perhaps God is altogether right and I'm wrong. Fellowship, folks. Fellowship is the reason we grow. Fellowship is the reason we change. Not with each other as much as our personal fellowship with the Lord. He said, if you abide in me, in verse 7, and my words abide in you, he said, you'll ask what you will and it shall be done. What a hookup. What an awareness of the greatness of God and the confidence that comes as it comes forth. Whatever you ask, it'll happen. That's faith. Isn't it something? The more you draw nigh to God, the more you're sure. Maybe the reason a lot of people are not sure and still have a lot of fear, they don't spend much time with the Lord. Seldom ever read. They don't think about spiritual things too much. They just go to church. No wonder they don't have a fellowship with the Lord. There's more to it than that. It's more involved than that. We have to yield ourselves to God. And as we do, as we begin to partake of the time, like right now, we're only here for a little while. You may think it's all day, but we're not here that long. And for the little bit of time we're here, it's in that little section of time. In this 24-hour day, we're going to give God one 24th of it, to hear his word. Boy, Nehemiah, just finished reading Nehemiah. They couldn't get enough of the word when the revival started. They read it every day, read it for a fourth of the day. A fourth, standing. And then they worshiped a fourth of the day. What if you had to spend one half of every Sunday hearing the word and worshiping? (sighs) But they did. They've had their eyes closed so long in captivity. When they begin to read the word, they realize the reason we've been in captivity is because we haven't done that. And today they come to the Lord in a church and they hear the Lord's word and say, I don't know about that. Because they're still captive. They're still held down by the past. And God wants to bring you to him to expose us, reveal to us, this is what's wrong with you. I can't use you acting like that. I want you to see things my way. Your ways are not my ways. Didn't he say that? Because your thoughts are not my thoughts. You've gone this way and that way and thought I had to bless it. He said, everything you did was wrong. Everything, everything. Every design of man in his attempt to please God or do something he thinks God ought to do that wasn't inspired by God is vanity. It's just wasted time. It's a humbling thing to know that the only way we can ever do right and please God and be the way we ought to be is by yielding to God. We have to yield. You know what the difficulty with abiding is? Why people don't continue to abide? It's verse 2 of John 15. It's verse 2. Verse 2 
Here's what verse 2 says. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, that would be what comes forth from him, he takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, what does he do to it? He purges it. He purges it so that it might what? Now, purging is like pruning. As a fruit tree, as it begins to grow and flourish, it's necessary to keep it pruned. If you get too many branches getting too much of the action, all the fruit is small. You want to make sure that the best branches or the most productive part continues to get a lot of life from the roots of the tree. So the pruner comes and he has his way of pruning things. I remember I pruned a tree once over there where Paul lives, one of the apple trees there down in the front yard. And I remember coming in the house after I had pruned it. See, I had been to a shaker town one day and I saw them pruning trees over there. There were more branches on the ground than there was in the tree. And I thought, boy, they stripped that tree bare. But I noticed they cut out a lot of stuff that was just little wasted stuff. They cut it out. You didn't need that. That's not necessary. So I went home and got my saw and my snippers. and I went down there and I terrified that apple tree down there. But I did it what I, as best I could see and tried to find the right place. And I cut around and had a trailer full of branches left over. I remember Bonnie looking out the window one time and said, well, you killed that one. And he come back last year, and there was so much fruit on the tree, it about fell on the ground, all them apples hanging all over it. <laughs> this will be a good day, won't it? Amen. But when you liken us to a branch, a branch that is responding, we are abiding with the Lord. We do want to hear his word. We do want to talk to him. We want to know what it means. We pray for understanding. We have become God conscious. God is in our thoughts. God is affecting everything that we're doing. So we're starting to bear fruit. The way I used to be, I'm not that way anymore. The things I used to not do, I'm doing now, the good things. There's a joy now. Didn't know you could be like this, just be spiritual or religious and have joy. But it is. And the more God begins to express himself through you, we develop a lot of little offshoots and a lot of little things that are not necessary and things that take up our time. And so he begins to prune us. Now, I can't describe exactly what pruning means or purging means here. I know what the, the word means to cleanse. It's translated more the word by the word pure than it is the word clean, about two more times. I think it's used like 33 times in the Greek language and about 18 times I think it's translated pure. So if you use that word, he said, now you're pure in verse 3. Now you're pure through the word that I have spoken to you. Let me ask you a question. Does the word cleanse us? Are you sure? Well, how does it cleanse us? It doesn't cleanse anybody because they heard it, does it? Doesn't there have to be an application of it? The word is nothing more than a dead letter unless it's made personal. 
what God has to say, he says to us with purpose. Everything God says has a design. Apparently, these men that followed Jesus, that walked away from everything they had, that counted it a joy to follow him all over Israel, they stayed with him. He said, you're clean. You've been purged. You folks are going to change the world. You know why? Because you're clean. The word has had the effect of turning you around and facing Jesus. He said, now you are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. The word has cleansed you. How do you think he's going to cleanse a church? Or does the church need to be cleansed? All right, now that everybody's sort of listening, let me ask you a question. When God brought us in here, did he bring any dirt in here? We were, as a picture, we were not clean people. We need to be cleansed. How will he cleanse us? By showing us a new and living way. He will sprinkle clean water on us. He will make sure that those of us who are his will hear the word. You'll take the word home with you. You'll talk about it. You'll think about it. You'll find yourself sometimes stopping what you're doing just to pray about it, asking questions. Well, why would you do You're talking to God. At least you're fellowshipping. And you begin to find that as a church, when God brings us all together with all of our confusions, all of our abstract ideas about nothing, I mean, we have some crazy ones all of our opinions and everything that God can't use, he brings us all in here. Turn to Ephesians 5. Put your finger right now where you are and turn to Ephesians 5. This is what he said. <laughs> Ephesians 5, look at verse 26. That he might sanctify, that's set apart, and cleanse his church How? With the washing of water by the word of God. Verse 27, why? That he might present unto himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. He's talking about us, you and me. He's talking about us. And there's one defined and distinct way that God says he will do this. One way. You know what it is? With the washing of water by what? The word. How important is his word to us? Without it, we remain as we were, therefore unacceptable. Many are called. Few will be chosen. But he says his church, his people, their response to him will be to his word. For he and his word are one. They will respond to his word. And by his word, which is him, he will do a work in us. God will be at work in us, won't he? That's his word working in us. That's him. That's his power. It all comes together. And the work that he is doing in us is to cleanse us from everything that is an obstacle to him. He wants us to be without 
spot and blemish, flaws. Us, you people, with all of our flaws and blemishes. He wants us to be so affected by what he is saying that there is a yielding to what he is saying that we quit doing all these other things. Then the life that comes out of us is his life. The seed is being reproduced. And this is what he wants. We begin to be what he wants us to be. He sets us apart with the word. We can't do that. We can't go there. We shouldn't wear that. We shouldn't. We begin to isolate ourselves from the world, separate ourselves from the world. We begin to be set apart unto God for his purpose, and that's why he called us. And then he begins to do this deeper work. Let's not kid ourselves. Not everybody goes to church, any church, here, anywhere else, allows a deeper work of God to take place. But you're worth preaching that every week if you have to. You're worth it because somewhere it's going to connect. It's going to come and and you're going to see it. But a deeper work, when God does a deeper work, it's a cleansing work. It's when the word begins to dominate and control your actions and your deeds. You become a word person. You're not trying to impress people. You're not trying to be over and above everybody else. It's what you humble yourself to. You humble yourself to his word. You let it do its work. Instead of you thinking you're somebody, it makes you think you realize you're nobody. But this is what he wants. Because his goal in the end, when it's all over, is for his church to stand before him two ways. Holy and without blemish. Isn't that what your Bible said in verse 27? That's what cleansing does. Now let me go back and read John 15. You can go back to that now. John 15, verse 3 said, Now you're clean through the word which I've spoken to you. Let me tell you about a church that wasn't clean. Let me tell you about an illustration of the Bible of a church, a group. One of the candlesticks of Revelation. Remember the church that was lukewarm? Laodicea, chapter 3. You remember what they said? They said, we have need of nothing. And they looked around at what they had done. We have done quite well. We are pretty much advanced beyond other people. We are busy. Look where we have gone. Look at who we have ministered to. Look at what we have done. Look at us. We have pictures in the lobby for a dollar a piece. Autographing is five more. But look at what we have done. And we think pretty well of ourselves. Remember what Jesus said to him? Let me read it. Let me tell you what he said. He said these four or five things to him in Revelation chapter 3. He said, you think you are somebody. I know your works, he said. You're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm. You ever drink lukewarm coffee? Yeah, all right. He said, so then because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you said, and this, listen to this boast, because you said, I am rich, I am increased with goods, 
I have need of nothing. And Jesus said, and you don't even know in all the midst of your religious refinery and all the midst of your sophisticated religious bigness, the talk of the town bigness, you don't even know. He said that you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, you're blind, and you're naked. None of those words are compliments. All of those words were spoken to a church. A church that was pretty uppity and pretty well-to-do, obviously had done a lot. Maybe had pulled down its barns and built bigger ones. Man likes to think he's pretty well accomplished. I'm to be followed. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. Look at what I know. And he said, you're miserable. You're wretched. You're poor. You're blind. And you're naked. In the eyes of God, when it's over and you stand before him, that's a just and fair judgment he'll give you after all your church life. Man, I read things like that and I think, you know, folks, it's not what we build and where we fellowship that's a big deal. It's our hearts. It's what's driving us. If you're motivated to look at me and look at what I've done, look at what I know, that's your reward. Because in the eyes of God, we have a long way to go. And you know what he said in verse 18 of that same chapter? He said, I counsel you. He didn't discard them. He, he gave them a chance. The lukewarm crowd. He said, I counsel you to buy from me. Again, the vine. What you've got is useless and worthless. I don't want it. For what this system has made of you that you produce has made you loathsome to God. What you have brought forth in your life is not that which God inspired. You use God, but it's, it's yourself. He said, I counsel you to buy of me gold refined in the fire. What is that? Well, gold is faith. More precious than gold, the precious, and so forth. Gold is something very valuable. Everybody longs for it in the jewelry world. Gold. He says, you get that from me. You get that from me. Now, Lord, if this cleansing and purging is going to take place and has to take place, or as Jesus said, John, back again, John 15, he said, if you're not bearing fruit, you're no good. It's, it's no good. For every branch in me that doesn't bear my fruit, I'm going to break it off and throw it away. It's going to be cast in the fire. Well, then, what's keeping us from bearing fruit then? Remember the story of the sower and the seed? Jesus went out to sow, sowed on this kind of soil, that kind of soil, you know, the hard soil, the stony soil, the thorny soil, and then the good soil. And Luke describes in Luke chapter 8 and verse 13, he says, now the word in this picture, the seed, he said, is the word of God. Jesus went everywhere speaking. Some of the words he spoke fell on those who weren't interested. Some wanted it, for, but it didn't want to pay that price. Others, you know, thorns and eyes too hard. Then others, a good soul, didn't matter what was going on, they wanted it. 
But the seed, the seed, Luke said, is the word of God. Now listen at these words. I'm going to read this from Luke chapter 18. He said, there were a lot of people. I would say this to you first in prefacing this. I believe there's a lot of people who really think they've received the word. I think there's a lot of people who really believe or accept the idea they've been born again. They've learned how to do all of this. They've learned how to clap their hands, raise their hands. They've learned how to study and all of that. I mean, they've walking the walk and talking the talk. I've known a lot of them. No many now, but I've known in my life a lot of people who started well, just like the sower and the seed. They started well, but they hit a snag. It got complicated. They had to make a big-time decision about, are we going to keep going? Are we going to modify the walk, back off, or what? Everybody goes and hits that wall, and everybody has to deal with it. Some don't deal with it well. And listen to what Jesus, how he describes about some who received the word and thought they had something which, well, I'll let you hear it. He said, take heed, therefore, how you hear. For whosoever has, to him shall be given. And from him who hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seems to have. It seems like he has it. It seems like she has it. If we go by this day and that day and maybe a daily routine, they seem to have it. But they won't stay with it. At some point, they'll back off or change it. Because you see, when you're born again, you're born again not of corruptible seed, but by an incorruptible seed, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. I can't tell you how many times the Bible likens the word of God to seed, and seed is what bears fruit. That's the way it is. And when you think about it, from the beginning where I started, that's what life is all about. What will be the end of our life? What did we do with it? What came forth from us? Nobody's taking notes and taking pictures or anything, but what's going to happen when it's all over? But what prevents this purging? I think Jesus said it like this. He said, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things, He said, they come in and they choke the word. They choke the word. You couldn't be here. I can't do that right now. I'm not ready for that. That's going to change my lifestyle if I do. Just things that choke the word. So this word, which is designed to sanctify, cleanse, make holy, relieve us and deliver us from spots and blemishes. This word, which is to refine us and draw us nigh to God, gets choked. As that's the choice you make. Just things in the world out there that are so more important than what God has been saying that you can't do what God said because, well, you got to do this, you got to do that. Remember, Jesus said, without me, you can't do anything. I'm telling you, folks, a lot of people are not where they should be because the things of this world, the pull of this world, 
the desire to have this world, the new this, the new that, to go here, to go there, to have this, to have that. Because deep in your mind, you don't realize it, but back of your, of your mind is this world's philosophy of comfort and happiness. If I could have that, I'd be comfortable. Boy, if I could have that, I'd, whew, I'd really be happy. If she was my girlfriend, oh, man. If I had that car, oh, I'd, I'd be, if that house, oh, man. It's all, but none of those things are designed by God to make you happy. God has given us richly all things to enjoy, but you can't take a brick to heaven. Those fancy clothes you got on, you can't wear any of it to heaven because they're not good enough. But we get so enamored with the world, all the commercials, all the ads in the paper, all the catalog pictures, Oh, if I could just have that or look like that. And yet God's picture is totally different. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, his character, his life, all of his fruits and gifts, the fruits of the Spirit, love and peace, and joy and long-suffering and goodness and gentleness and meekness and temperance and faith and patience. Those are the things, I don't care what you look like, what color you are, where you came from. This is what God wants. This is the kind of person he wants you to be. You're not naturally like that. You have to be made like this. If This is the kind of person that God wants you to be. So, in closing... How do we know who's chosen, who's ordained, and who really is going? How do we know? How can we tell? How can I look at you and say, you're one of those that are ordained? You've been chosen. We all want to know, don't we? Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. Would you go back there and I'll show you. This is how you know. Matthew chapter 7. You shall know them by how big a check they wrote. That leaves a lot of us out, doesn't it? Not me, bless God. I'll write it. Good, good. Write it then. You shall know them by how large their family is. Nope. You shall know who? Who are we talking about? Know who? God's people. Isn't he talking about that? You have to read before that, but he's talking about false prophets. But the principle works for the true stuff. You know a false prophet by his fruit, by what he's after and how he lives and who gets the glory for what he's doing. And the same thing is true with us. How can we tell amongst us? Well, you found it by now. Listen to it. You shall know them by their fruits. That's verse 16. You shall know them by their fruits. Not only the false, but the true. If you're kind and nice and you're gentle and you don't have a religious spirit where you're trying to do all this stuff for attention, God's doing a work in your life. Amen. It isn't over, so you got a long way to go. Your fruit has to stay with it. you got to keep bearing it. You have to keep going. Verse 17. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. Now, let me ask you a question. 
When we bite and devour one another, is that good fruit or bad fruit? Then if a so-called Christian is biting and devouring, can I say that that's the life of the vine flowing into him? God had nothing to do with that, did he? If we lie, cheat, and steal, and treat each other miserably, backbite, whisper, gossip, is that good fruit? Is it bad fruit? Where does it come from? Listen to me. It comes from something that remains in your life that's never gotten rid of. It's never been to the cross. You're still like that. You're still that way. You're still that kind of a person. That's why we keep preaching, because you're worth preaching to. You're worth it. I don't want to see you go hammer dead into the grave and then be judged. You're worth being changed. Or if I may use a Bible word, please don't talk about me after church because I say this, but you just need to be dunged. <laughs> Is that a Bible word? Amen. There was one guy's going to chop a tree down once. The guy that cares said, look, let me dig it and dung it. Let me see if I can get something going here. And then if a year later, if it's not doing any better, then it's Matthew 3.10. Cut it down. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. Why cumberest thou the church? Or, excuse me, why cumberest thou the ground? But anyway, verse 17, he said, Every good tree brings forth good fruit, and every corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down, and cast into the fire, verse 20, wherefore, by their fruits, you shall know them. Let me ask you something. Are evil actions an indication of the fruit of your life? Anything evil is fruit. Any expression of evil is a fruit. Any expression of godliness is a fruit. It's what you're yielding to. Something in you that still drives you, gets its way with you, and your will is in its hands, and it does what it does. Either you suppress it and crucify it, or you give way to it. But it's your fruit. It's you. That's how we know who you are. That's why people say, don't say that around them. Oh, don't get them right. Oh, boy, she can be so cranky sometimes. Why should she be like that after 15, 30 years in church? You mean to tell me she's still an old cranky person after 15 years? You mean he's still a hard head, and, but he's a deacon? Yeah, he's a hard head deacon. Boy, he'll hit you right in the mouth. Where did that come from? Well, it's been in there all along. It just never did die. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. I ain't going to be pushed around by nobody. Where do you think that come from? It came from another life. You brought it into the church. You didn't know you had that until the word of God said, you got a bad attitude. That's the only one. No, you're not. But if you don't get rid of that, I'm going to break you off. What do you mean break me off? Read the Bible. God cannot lie. This is what he said. Either be holy or be left out. Either want it. To some degree, 30, 60, 100, either want it or be left out of it. Verse 22, you're still in chapter 7. 
Verse 21 through 22. But many will say to me in that day, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and do that? Are they saying that, Lord, look at the fruit we born? They said to Jesus, Lord, you're talking hard. Look at what we've been doing. We worked miracles and we had campaigns. I preached for 40 years. Lord, I went to the mission fields and put my life on the line. Why would he say, I never knew you? Who? Didn't he say that? Depart from me? Did he say that? Depart from me, you workers of what? Iniquity. I never knew you. How do you mean you never knew somebody that's out here busy? What do you mean you never knew them? Well, he knows everybody. You know that. But the word know here, I think, is intended to be a relational word. As one commentator said, we never had a true, vital relationship. You took my words and you made your ministry. You formed with my words what Christians expect to hear. You took my words and you formed for yourself a ministry. Now you went to a lot of people and I bless your word because they're my people. I want to save them. What you said wasn't wrong. It's just your motivation was wrong. They got saved by hearing my word. But you see, you're still an unprofitable what? You got no biggie coming. That's what you're supposed to do. Now you're trying to get praise for it. You've reminded me of all your accomplishments. We never had a relationship. You're still full of yourself. You're still full of yourself. It's not me you're trying to glorify, though you speak like that, but you're really after yourself. He said, I never knew you. And then those awful words, depart from me. Didn't he say that? Isn't that somewhere in that part of the scripture there? Depart from me. And how did he end the chapter then? After saying those solemn words, how did he end the chapter? By speaking of wisdom. He said, whoever hears these words of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man. Now we're back to the word again and the effect it's supposed to have on you because he said, whoever heareth and doeth, I will liken him unto a wise man. A wise man is one who, when he builds his house, he takes the time to dig down to the foundation. Now, everybody thinks he's wasting time because all he's doing is digging. Well, you're not going there. I know, but I, this has got to be done. This is the way to do it. So he digs down until the only thing you can see is dirt flying out of the hole. But he, he dinked. I love that sermon. He dig. He dig till you dink. And he dinked because the shovel hit the rock. There you are. Now you've got a solid foundation to build on. Then he lays his foundation, and he builds his house. And all the ways of this world cannot make that house fall down because he took time to do it God's way. Another man said, hey, a house is a house. You're taking up all the Lord's time being too technical and too legal. He just put it on the sand, and the fish got it. It went into the sea. And he said, that's the difference between a wise man and a foolish man. A wise man hears the word of God 
and realize that this is the greatest single thing that Christ will ever reveal to you in this life. You cannot improve on it. You best not take away from it. But this is what, if you do this, you'll be his disciples, and he will give you that well done, thou good and faithful servant reward. But if you don't, if you just want to be a good, religious, kind, cheerful person, help the poor every now and then, just, you know, just want to be good, good old boy, build something for somebody, do something, you do that. But when it's over, that's all you had. You got your reward. So, let me leave you with this. If Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, can I say that what is flowing into my life is changing me into what I see the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Amen. Bow your head. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would deliver us from evil, from evil ways, that we would open our doors to the great refiner and to the refiner's fire that purges and cleanses and removes all the distractions and the useless things in our lives. The refiner who improves the tree by pruning it, makes it better. Find us, Lord, what you're looking for. Find us what you want. Make us to be open and receptive to your word. And Lord, if there are any here today who are at best casual, I pray there would just be more and more attempts, more and more fire would come into their life that they would never be left alone as long as they're here. That you would continue to love them by giving them your word. And may those that are seeking, striving and desiring to do your will. Lord, may the sun begin to shine brighter. May that perfect day that's coming be more and more real to them. And Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this morning for Jesus. I want to thank you for Jesus, his word, your way, and for saving us. I want to thank you for our salvation. More than anything, Lord, I want to thank you for salvation. Now I pray in Jesus' name as we close that you would minister to everybody in here. Open our eyes and our hearts, at least this morning. Make it clear to us. Leave nobody alone. And Lord, continue to do a deep work here in our midst, in this church. So that what goes forth out of here and what comes out of here is pleasing to you. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you stand to your feet?
Good job. 